And in some ways, it comes across as, as a little bit negative of saying, well, you gotta, you know, we gotta talk about stuff that we gotta root out of our lives, and that's not really happy, that's not really positive. Well, I remember reading one commentary, and they said, no matter how much positive thinking you're doing, it's not gonna help your ruptured appendix. At some point, you gotta cut it out, right? So we gotta talk about some stuff. Our life, and the way that we're living for God, needs to conform to His image. We need to do some things differently. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about, removing the dead man. Now, I want to begin with some quotes here. And they're on your page, so if you want to take out the handout sheet in your bulletin. Um, but also, you can't go anywhere without a Bible. So take out your Bible if you don't have it and turn to Colossians. If you don't have one, raise your hands. The guys will bring one right to where you're sitting as we're kind of reading through this quote here at the beginning, but we're going to be turning to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It's page 834. As we look at these quotes, let's take a look at the one by C.F.D. Mowell. I don't know who it is. I don't even think I really like his name. But anyway, it says this, the Christian must kill self-centeredness and regard as dead all private desires and ambitions. There must be in his life a radical transformation of the will and a radical shift of the center. Everything which would keep him from fully obeying God and fully surrendering to Christ must be surgically excised or cut out. Powerful, pretty, pretty poignant, pretty sharp. To cut it all out, is that possible? Now, I don't know, you don't have to raise your hand, but I think that maybe you're like me, that some of us have fallen prey to the idea that we're never really going to get rid of our sin. we just kind of got to beat it back into the closet. we just got to kind of get it to mellow out. we got to get it to quit bothering us. we got to get it in some way to get off our case. So what we do is we do just enough spiritual growth or discipline to kind of push it back and then shut the door and try to lock it. Or we try to hold it down in a pot somewhere to keep the lid on it, but eventually we grow tired of holding our hand out there, and eventually we're going to either weaken or pull our hand off, and it's going to spring back to life. And a lot of us keep sinning because you just figure, you know what? I just got to try to sin less. Right? That's the big goal. Sin less. Sin less than you did last week. The Bible seems to take a totally different view. It seems to take this radical approach of cutting out, literally hacking it out of our life or killing it. And the way that we see this demonstrated is that in the Old Testament, when you remember when the Israelites marched into the Promised Land, what were they told to do the inhabitants, the Canaanites that lived there? Root them out completely. Why? Because if they left them, what would be the problem? They'd take them down. He said, they're going to become a problem for you. You have to get them out completely. And what did Israel not do? Get them out completely. And it's been a problem all the way even to the present day. So what we're watching is that was a big mental picture or a big visual symbol of what we need to do with sin in our life. You've got to get it out completely and totally. You can't mess around with it. And that's why Jesus uses weird analogies and parables like if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to go into heaven missing an eye than to have your body thrown into the flames. You're like, dang, that's, that's kind of extreme, isn't it? Do we really need to do the eye gouging thing? You know what? He was trying to be so serious of saying... This sin is dangerous. You can't just mess with it. You can't play around with it. 
You've got to root it out or it's going to eat you alive. The second quote is by William Barclay, and he said this, When a man becomes a Christian, there ought to be a complete change in his personality. A Christianity that does not change a man is most imperfect. I think that for many of us, when we come to church, we're disappointed. We have some type of expectation that though we are normal, human, average, and ordinary, we assume that everyone else should be Mr. Rogers. Right? When they hurt us or they harm us, we're thinking, how dare you do that? My grandma would never do that. And you're like, wait a second, when did I become your grandma? What are you talking about? And we walk around and we run into these average, ordinary, kind of psycho individuals in the church, and we're like, you're mean. I don't like you. You bother me. And you're hurtful to me, and you say bad things about me. You talk behind my back. You still have a major issue with gossip. And you know what? you got sin all over your life. I can see it from here. And we're disappointed as if we assume that something else was going to happen. But wait a second. Why should we assume that? Oh, they're Christians. That's right. So they must have it all together. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. That's unacceptable. What we tend to do is take a random sampling of church folk, match them up against a random sampling of people in the world, meaning people that don't trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and we match them together and go, who's nicer? Okay, what do you, many times, what do you largely find? That the non-believers are nicer than the believers. What in the world's going on there? I thought Jesus made all this change. I thought he transformed people. So what's going on? You cannot judge whether Jesus practically works by matching up two different individuals. The only way you can do that is to match up the same individual pre-conversion versus post-conversion. Here's why. Because our nation, America, has a massive Christian hangover. We are still in the non-believing households teaching biblical principles. We are still teaching the Ten Commandments, and whether we know it or not, we're lacing it through all the ways that we teach our kids on how to be a good citizen. We teach morality. And as a matter of fact, we define morality still a little bit like the Bible does. So it's things like we teach our kids don't lie. And the kids should probably go, why not? I don't know, just don't do it. Well, why? No parent's going to go, because the Bible told you so, that's why. If they're not a believer, right? They just don't lie. That's what we do in our society. That's what makes you a good person. Where in the world did they learn that from? So once again, we have a bunch of households creating morality in their households, so when their kids come out, they come out as rather moral people. Well, you have to understand, morality is not always godliness. Morality is a sliding scale with society. Morality adjusts. But what ends up happening is then you've got a bunch of Christians. And why do a lot of people come to church? Usually it's because they've hit rock bottom. When you're hauling down towards the bottom, you pick up some bad habits on the way. I don't know if you guys noticed that. All right? As you're falling, you kind of grab a couple addictions, grab a couple bad habits, you grab a couple messed up things, and then you hit bottom. So then all of a sudden Jesus whispers to you when you're on your back and the only way to look is up. He says, hi, how are you? I'm God. Been here the whole time. Would you like to walk with me? Oh, I want to surrender my life. All of a sudden the salvation process begins and they start walking from out of the hole. Well, when you match them up against little Mr. Morality next door, how do they look? Absolutely wicked. They're all messed up. They still have a problem with lying. They're still hitting the bong. They're doing all kinds of stuff. 
And meanwhile, the person next door that doesn't even know Jesus is sitting there going, I don't have a problem with drugs. What's your problem? And then you walk into church and everybody has all these hang-ups and mess-ups and you're looking at them going, I thought you were a Christian. They're like, I am! I'm forgiven! Jesus does work. But make sure who you're matching people up against. Let's be rational about this. Let's think about this for a moment. But if indeed you have become a Christian and there's no change in you, we have a problem. Does that make sense? Because it naturally, when you turn the engine on, when you turn the machine on, and you go from death to life, it starts producing new fruit. Automatically, the machine produces fruit. You can't have fruit coming out. No, does fruit make you a Christian? No. You turn the machine on. That's what produces the fruit. Does that make sense? But it must radically change you. Now, obviously, for some of you that were like me when you accepted Christ at six, what does that mean? It's, like, it's kind of like you're doing something different than you used to. And I'm like, uh, G.I. Joe's got to stop doing that. Um, Hot Wheels are bad. Um, Mr. Potato Head, you know, that kind of stuff. I think you get the point. Let's take a look at the fill in the blank there in front of you. I think we made uh, something out of this sin issue that shouldn't be. Much of holiness is letting go. Much of holiness is letting go. And taking out the trash. Much of holiness is letting go and taking out the trash. See, we do this whole thing of going, how are we ever going to root it out? How are we ever... Maybe you just need to let go. Maybe you need to stop holding on to some things that you're holding on to that are actually killing you. Maybe when Jesus Christ cut the bag off your back, you can let it drop. Does that make sense? And you go, well, wait a second, no, 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 Christianity is really hard, sin is really easy. Initially, let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Is sin easy? Well, I don't know, my natural human nature bends towards sin, so yeah, it's kind of easy. But answer me this, is it easier to live a life of addiction or non-addiction? Oops, it's easier to live a life of non-addiction, right? Is it easier to live the life where you go around and you murder someone and the rest of your life you worry about retribution and you have to look over your back to see if anyone's going to kill you. What's easier? Not living that way or living that way? Yet we keep playing this game that somehow sin is easier and holiness is harder. Isn't there some degree where Jesus Christ's yoke is easy and His burden is light, right? Isn't there some degree where if we're doing it the proper way, we actually have freedom and a lightness of being and an ability to walk through life and actually enjoy more things because we're not enslaved to a million things. Does that make sense? I'll tell you what will kill you. It's playing half and half. Right? Isn't that what really kills us? It's this whole idea that we're trying to have a one foot in the world, one foot with Jesus Christ. Now that's miserable living. Because, and unfortunately that's where most of us stand. I don't know anybody that's not really standing there. I'm sure you're here. I just haven't met you. That means everyone that I've met, I don't think you're it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> but what kills you is now you have this calling or this belief that holiness is something that you're called to, but you still don't want to do it, so you walk around with a bunch of guilt. That's all you got. Life of guilt is not exactly what God designed. As a matter of fact, you were set free from guilt and shame, yet we live in guilt constantly. Half the time, we don't even want to come to church because we feel so guilty. Right? I get it. 
to some degree, if we're doing it right, we have to let go of a lot of things that we've been chasing after. For example, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That means let go of trying to amass the perfect life. Is that freeing? It should be. But you're not letting it go. So you're adding on. And add-ons just hurt and just create more weight. So Paul begins to go through and talk about our new identity in Christ and talk about rooting some stuff out, letting it go and taking out the trash. Now, does anyone like to take out the trash? No, it's irritating. I, don't, I have a bunch of better things to do than to take out the trash, but sometimes you've got to take out the trash, right? You know, it's funny because when I was a little kid, I was involved in this class and I went to go do a poetry kind of like spelling bee, a poetry thing to win a ribbon. All right. And even though I'm a public speaker now, I was not back then. I was very, very little. And I was scared to death of this whole concept. And so I told him, no, I'll do it. Right. Because I was I was game for it. And I was going to memorize a big poem and really show him that I knew what was up. So I memorized a big poem, I thought. And then I went before these judges. Here's a panel of adults staring at me. I'm trying to do a poem. And when I got there, I realized I didn't really know the poem. I hadn't really actually memorized much of it at all. So I had this great paranoia, and I kind of had to stumble through it. The poem that I memorized was from Shel Silverstein, which if you guys remember back from the 70s, kind of Mr. Hippie, they kind of drew all the pictures. Right. It was Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. That was the name of the poem. I'm glad I memorized the name. It was a long poem. The whole point was this girl wouldn't take the garbage out and eventually filled up her room and her house and it completely took up everything in her life. Paul's trying to get to the same point. Why aren't we getting rid of this stuff? It's piling up, it stinks, and it's killing you. Get it out of your life. Let's take a look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, page 834. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, page 834. I'll just read the first two verses and we can pray for the word this morning. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us in a supernatural way that we might be able to not only understand what you're going to say to us today, but to see how it applies to our lives and even more so to do something about it. May we leave changed individuals both in mind and in action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since then. A lot of the Bible's sentences start with since then. And mostly you would probably just blow past it and go, come on, give me the meat. What's going on? You just missed the truth right there. Since then. Here's what I think is fantastic about Christianity. You see, many of us still have the mindset that the world does, which is Christianity takes your life as difficult as it is, which is holding down a job, doing everything they ask you to do, running your family, trying to be a good parent, trying to be a good spouse, blah, 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 trying to finish school, whatever it is you're struggling with. Christianity takes all of that and sticks a bunch of rules and regulations right on the top. Oh, if that didn't hurt, how about this? Bam, slammed you with something else. We always assume that's how Christianity works. Life hard? Great, let me make it worse for you. And that's why we don't want to share it with our friends. Why would you want to share the bad news of the false gospel with all your friends? Why do you want their life to be more miserable? I thought you liked them. Right? 
But that's not Christianity. Christianity has since then statements, which means, since I freed you and did all the heavy lifting, walk like a free man. Since I died for you and cleansed all your sins, walk like you're forgiven. Since I did everything, could you now maybe walk out the door? That'd be terrific. Do you see my point? That's Christianity. It's not, the Bible will never ask you to do something it's not enabled you to do. You've got to believe that. You've got to understand that. Since then, powerful. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. What do you mean raised with Christ? I mean, Jesus Christ died. He came back to life again and He ascended to the Father. How are we raised? Positionally, supernaturally, spiritually, we are with Jesus. Where is He? Victorious up in heaven. That means that our position is now with Him. That means our security is now locked with Him. That means because He's up there and He loves us, we have certain privileges. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What's the right hand of God? Well, God, remember that's that Elohim term, that's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, sitting there on the throne. What's the right hand? The right hand position to any ruler is the position of authority, the position of the one that executes judgment. In other words, it's a power position. So who's at the right hand of God? Who's the one, who's the person of God that's going to execute with power? It's going to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yes? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That should mean that we live differently. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, that word in Greek, to set, means to seek, to strive for. This is a little bit of work. You've got to start controlling your thought life. Is that easy? Is that hard? I don't know. Depends on how you live. Depends on what you've trained your mind to do. Do you all realize that we can't just let our minds wander wherever they want to go? I mean, are we all at least that mature? That at some point you have to realize your mind is going to drift off into some messed up place if you let it go for too long, right? As a matter of fact, I will be praying and I will have weird psycho thoughts, bam, right into my head out of nowhere. I'm right in the middle of talking to God. And all of a sudden I have the most bizarre psycho thought. And I'm like, where in the world did that come from? Now I have an option. You either change the channel and kick it out, or you sit there and go, huh, it's fascinating. I hadn't even thought of that before. <laughs> Pretty good idea, actually. God, can you hold on for a second? The phrase here in Greek means keep thinking about heavenly things. Keep thinking about eternal things. Keep thinking about, in other words, stop thinking about circumstance. Stop thinking about like this is it. This isn't it. This is just the beginning. We haven't even begun to start the good stuff. Don't live this life as if this is everything. Don't live your life as if your sin nature is the sum total of you. There is so much more and we got to get our eyes off this world, back up into heaven and start focusing on Jesus. I remember hearing the phrase, Gaze at the cross, glance at men. Not the other way around. Keep your eyes on Jesus and if someone taps you on the shoulder say, what? Hold on. And you're looking back up at Jesus. Do not take your eyes off Jesus. Hebrews says what? We fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Do we not? Fix your eyes. That takes some focus. That takes some attention. 
Seek, strive, keep thinking about heavenly things because your mind will take you somewhere else. It needs a little bit of control. Is that hard or is that easy? Is it hard or easy to think about things? Well, it depends. Let me give you a scenario, and this is kind of how I, in my little illustration picture for this whole passage. Imagine you have been in a six-by-six six cell in a POW camp, prisoner of war camp. Torture, absolute blackness, sliding food under the door, total isolation for 30 years. And then one day someone sets you free and they open up the door and they say, come on out. Is that easy or is that hard? I don't know. What I'm saying is it might be a little nerve-wracking. What I'm saying is what happens when you go out that door. Anybody ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? In Shawshank Redemption, there's a scene that I'll never forget. It was about an older gentleman that had been in prison for 50 years. And when he's finally set free and he's paid his due to society... He goes out and tries to go to the grocery store. And how much of life has changed in 50 years? He didn't know what to do. He was completely lost. And he felt like he had to play catch-up. And so he went back to his apartment, what they had given him, and he couldn't get a job because he had a felony record. He went back to his apartment and he hung himself because he was out of jail. Is it hard or is it easy to change your identity? Is it hard or is it easy to walk in freedom? If someone starts screaming at you, come on, you're free, you're free, come out here. You know what most of us do? We start redecorating our cell. Oh, well, now that I have access, can you bring in a more comfortable bed? Because I'm not really necessarily anti-cell. I'm a little bit more anti the bed. The bed's not comfortable. Can we bust out a window right here? That would be awesome. See what I'm saying? We just start redecorating the cell, and the whole time Jesus Christ set us free and said, Come on, we gotta go, we gotta go. Can we get out there? You were set free to live. Not to redecorate. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What do you mean I died to sin? Sin seems pretty well alive. What do you mean I died? I'm still struggling with this stuff every day. What do you mean I died? You died positionally. You died spiritually. You died supernaturally in the sense that two things used to really mess with you. One was the fear of death. Once you die, there's no fear anymore, right? What do you got to worry about? It's already covered. You're just going to transfer from this life into eternal life. It's not a big deal. So that's taken away. The other thing is, there used to be a big code that God could look at and go, wow, you are a screw-up. I didn't realize what a big loser you were. And there's a whole long list of regulations that you were not adhering to. When you die, the law doesn't apply to you anymore. You're dead. You died with Jesus Christ when you substituted your life for His. Therefore, the law doesn't have any effect on you, and death holds no fear for you. That's a pretty big deal. He said, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? It means this. You are enveloped in Jesus Christ. He is all about you. You are all about Him. You are now one and the same. You're completely surrounded by Jesus Christ. That is both a safety issue and an identity issue. Sin may be able to push you around, but it can never condemn you. 
Do you understand? It will still mess with you. It will still dangle your old self in front of you. It will still mess with you because your spirit is with God, but you still dwell here in a fleshly body that's still messed up. So there's this fight, this war. But as much as sin can mess with you, it can never close the book on you. It can never accuse you to the point of condemnation. That's done. Jesus took care of that. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. Do you realize that Jesus is coming back? Do you believe that? All right. When He shows up, you are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. You will be... If you're alive, when He shows back up, while you see Him coming, you will be glorified in your new body and be able to be with Him and join in His procession as He finishes the job that He set out to do. You will be glorified. Your sin will no longer be your problem. Your body will no longer be a difficulty. You will be new. Brand new. Should that change how you live today? Yeah, it should. But as a matter of fact, I think a lot about how I will react when Jesus Christ comes back face to face. Half the time I'm freaked out. Everyone in the Bible that ever saw an angel did what? fell down on their face. Okay, if I ever see Jesus, it's not going to be pretty. Does that make sense? <laughs> Just turn into a blob right there on the ground. You go, but it, what's neat is the Bible seems to suggest that he will be familiar. And even though he comes riding in on a white horse as one of the most powerful warriors that you could ever imagine. And he has written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, though he comes riding in as a victor, you'll look at him and go, Dad! And the fear won't have to be there. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. All right, great stuff. Been talking about all the positive. Do something. That's what Paul said. Okay, quit acting like that. The word there in Greek, to put to death, means to kill, to mortify. Get rid of it. Stop doing that. Jesus Christ made you alive, but you're acting like you're still in prison. Stop doing that. Do something different. Put to death, therefore what? Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. What do you mean, belongs to my earthly nature? What does that mean? It means not God's stuff. Get rid of and stop doing anything that's not in line with what God would do. That's not the example of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know. How many things is that? Here Paul has an enormous list that we're about to go through. In the other passages that he writes, he adds 25 more to the list. These are not a full and comprehensive list. These are just suggestions of going, here's kind of one of them, here's kind of one of them, but what's the point? Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, stop doing that. He said, like what? Well, let's start with the beginning one. Sexual immorality. That word in Greek is porneia. You go, oh, he means porn. No, wrong term. This is a general term for improper sex acts. Unlawful sex acts. Stuff that God's not into. What does that mean? Well, it means everything from the familiar. Adultery is in that term. Married people having sex with people that are not their spouse. Fornication is in that term, which is non-married people having sex with non-married people. Then, on the other side, you have the creepy stuff. 
incest, bestiality, all under the same term. Any type of sexual act that is unacceptable in the sight of God is in this term right here. Stop doing that. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, such as sexual immorality, impurity. That word is akatharsia in Greek. And it really, it's funny how Greek works. It gives you a word, and then it says not at the beginning. Akatharsia, cleanness, cleansing. Not. That's what it means. Not cleansing. Impurity, whatever is not clean. Well, what does that mean? It means your mind and your intentions. That's what it means. Do I need to spell it out? You go, oh, I mean lust. No, that's next. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, lust. Lust in Greek is pathos. Really weird. Pathos is a Greek word for suffering. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Lust means an uncontrollable desire to have something for your own consumption. It means wanting to own someone else for your benefit. That's what lust is. Lust is a neutral term. It doesn't always refer to sexual stuff. But in this context, it does. It means you want someone else for your benefit. And you are so intensely focused on that individual that you are suffering. That's what the word means. Then look at the next phrase. So stop doing that. Next one. Evil desires. In Greek, that's epithumian. That means longing for the forbidden. This is general. There are times when you're sick and tired of holiness. You're sick and tired of righteousness. And you just want to sin. You don't really care what it is. You're like, you know what? I want to sin. I have a little hunger inside me that says sin. So I'm like, ah, what are we going to do? I don't know. i got to sin. Well, what do you want to sin? How do you want to sin? There's lots of options. I don't really care. What do you want to do? I don't know. Sex? Sure, let's do that. All right, great. What about killing somebody? Yeah, I'm into that too. That's great. Fantastic. The idea is that in your heart, you just have this craving of your fleshly nature to do something anti-God, to fill you up and make you feel better. It can be everything as simple as overeating just for the sake of feeling better and kicking God out of the scenario. It could be something as extreme as just saying, I'm going to go out to deceive somebody. It's filling that fleshly nature that hungers inside you. A desire to do what's forbidden. You think these are pretty comprehensive terms? So, stop doing that. Stop doing sexual immorality. Stop doing impurity. Stop doing lust. Stop doing evil desires. And stop doing greed, which is idolatry. That word in Greek has a great definition. It's pleonexia, meaning desiring more. Stop wanting more. What a great definition. Well, I don't know. How much is too much? Okay, just stop wanting more. Because with you, it's not about what you have. It's what else you want to have. Whatever you're going to get is insatiable. Whatever you get, it's not going to fulfill you. Whatever. You, at some point, let's grow up. At some point, we have to mature and realize no material object is going to satisfy us. You get the car, eventually the car you're used to. Right? You get the house, eventually you're sick of cleaning it. You get the girlfriend, eventually she's like irritating. Do you see what I mean? No matter what you get in this world, it's not going to cut it. You're always going to get sick of it. Stop wanting more. More's not going to solve your problem. It's just more. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Holy cow, it's a big deal. Wrath of God is coming. The word there, the way it's designed in Greek, 
is its present and future, meaning it's already here to some degree, but it's just going to get worse. What do you think? God hasn't let out his wrath on disobedience. Are there no consequences to our sin? Oh, man, our sin eats us alive. God has already said, no, I don't like that. Stop. And he hits you. Right? Stop doing that. You're hurting other people. Don't do that. There's already wrath here present in sowing and reaping concepts, but it's more than that. In the future, when Jesus Christ comes back, there's going to be a whole lot of wrath coming. Now, understand something. For believers, no wrath. No wrath for believers. But there's punishment for believers. Hey, do they feel different? Not really. If I'm a little child and I do something wrong and someone hates my guts and they punch me in the face, does it hurt? Well, yes, it does. If I'm a little child and I do something wrong and my mom spanks me, does it hurt? Sure does. Funny how that works. They both hurt. So what's the difference? Is there any difference between punishment from your mom and someone hating your guts and punching you in the face? Well, yeah, sure there is. Because with punishment, there is an act of love that accompanies it and provides emotional security. For hatred, there is the physical pain along with an emotional hit. Because they're saying, and I think that you're horrible. What's more difficult to heal from? The emotional hit or the physical hit? The emotional hit. So, there's all this baggage that's associated, but God will not bring wrath on a believer but He will bring discipline. That's how He treats us as sons. Let's keep moving. He says what? You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now, is that true? Did everybody reading used to walk in these ways? Yeah, pretty much. When He wrote the letter to this church, it was only five years old. Everyone was fresh out of the world. Does that make sense? I mean, everybody's a new believer, a new convert. So they're like, yeah, I remember that about five years ago. Yep, I was a psycho too. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Meaning, if you didn't know Jesus, either you didn't care to live any different than living for yourself, or if you did care, you didn't have any power to change it. Do you realize that one of the reasons you should feel excited about sharing the good news is that your friends have no options to get out of the life they're living? You're actually telling them how to receive power from on high to change their life. A lot of times we think we're just adding guilt. We're not just adding guilt. We're showing them the way to live victorious. That's a pretty big deal. That's pretty awesome. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Listen to this picture he's drawing. In the early Christian church, when you got baptized, you would walk in with your old clothes into the water, and when you came out, they had brand new shiny white clothes, brand new for you to put on as a visual picture of your cleansing in Jesus Christ. That's the word picture right here. Take off. That's what the word in Greek means. To rid yourself, take off these things. Just like your clothes. Is it hard or easy? I don't know. It depends on what you're used to. Take off these things. What do you got to take off? Take off anger. That word in Greek is orge. It means slow-burning hatred. You're just bent. Does that make sense? You walk through life and you're an angry person. You smolder inside. And when someone cuts you off, bam, you let it fly. Because you're just angry. Okay, he said, root it out. Get rid of it. What else? Rage. That word in Greek is thumos. It means that fiery explosion of anger. That's where you just go off the handle on somebody. Okay, that's not okay. 
that's not acceptable for the Christian life. Isn't it funny how when we read out the sexual stuff, everyone's like, oh, yeah, don't do that. And then we read this stuff, and everyone's like, oh, it's all right. Next one, malice. What does malice mean? Kakia in Greek, it means ill will for another person. You just don't want anyone else to succeed. You just don't like people. Or maybe somebody in, in particular, they get a promotion, you go, great, I hope you choke on your food at lunch. You're like, man, what is wrong with you? I don't know, I hate you. Why, why, why do you hate me? You can't. Just hate? I do. All right. Stop doing that. Slander. Slander in Greek is blasphemia. I wonder where they got blasphemy from. Insulting and slanderous talk. Tearing someone down in the eyes of another. Stop ruining other people's reputation. Well, they deserve it. I'm sure they do. But Satan's doing a great job of slandering them. Why are you helping him out? And filthy language from your lips. Everyone goes, ooh, see, you can't use bad words. That's not what it says here. I'm not telling you to use bad words. I'm just telling you that's not the word right here. There's another passage for that. This passage means abusive language, harmful speech to somebody else, tearing somebody else down. Can you stop hurting everybody else? I know you're mad. I know you're bent. I know you're having a bad day. Quit being mean to everybody else. It's not okay. And do not lie to each other. We are called to be truthful. And just so you know, it's not just telling a lie. It's deceiving in any way. Leading someone astray or misleading the information. Because you all know the Christian way of lying, right? Just don't say it. That's the Christian way of lying. Is that you don't tell a lie. You just seem to omit certain information. Hmm. I don't know what I'm talking about. I never do that. But anyway, I heard that some of you do that. No, I'm just kidding. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. In other words, you've already changed your clothes. Jesus Christ did this big overhaul. You're a new creation. And now you're just trying to live it. You're trying to get it through your head. You're trying to grasp your new identity, which is being renewed day after day after day. Continuous action. And he said, now, let me let you know what church is like. He closes with this. Church is a place where we tear down walls, not tear down each other. Let me say that again. Listen to me closely. Church is a place where we tear down walls, we don't tear down each other. That's what Paul just said. So, here, in church, in God's body, here, there is no Greek or Jew. Meaning, no national distinctions. The Jews hate the Greeks. They didn't want to hang out with them, they wouldn't eat with them, and if they even walked through their territory, they would shake off their dirt from their sandals. They hated their guts. No more. Not in the church. What else? There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, meaning no religious distinction. There's no second-class Christians. You're either a child of God or you're not, period. There's no barbarian or Scythian. Barbarian is the Greek word barbar, meaning they don't even know how to talk. They're so ignorant, they just repeat the same syllable. And Scythian were the worst of barbarians. They swept through Asia and drank blood from their victims and made scalp napkins and they made bowls out of skulls. They were brutal, psycho people. This close to wild beasts is what some of the writers said. The Greek historian Herodotus specifically. He said, you know what? I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what your background is. Are you a believer in Christ? Then you're a new creation. Welcome. There are no second class people here in church. And there is no slave or free. 
Aristotle wrote that a slave was not even human. It was merely a living tool to be used, not in church. You walk into this church, whether you're slave or you're free, equal in the eyes of God, equal at the foot of the cross. Amen? But Christ is all and is in all. In other words, the only reason that you can even sit here is by the state of grace that Jesus Christ has given you. So don't play a game that you're better than me. Don't play a game that I'm better than you. It's unacceptable. You think this is a full and complete list? What do we need to throw in here? Sexism. Racism. You think you can hold another race out and say that they're less than you, and you're going to call yourself a believer. Don't even begin with that with me. Absolutely anti-biblical, and it has no right in the life of a believer. Is that easy or hard? I don't know. Jews hated Gentiles for thousands and thousands of years, and all of a sudden... Jesus shows up and says, no, they're our brothers. What? There need to be a little renewing of the mind? Sure does. This stuff isn't easy, but it's reality and it's identity. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for a reminder today of what we need to change. For Father, we want to know what pleases You. We want to know what displeases You. Otherwise, we just walk around in confusion. And we ask right now that you would not only allow that to soak in, but give us the power to root that stuff out, to change those clothes, to get rid of it and to take out the trash. For you have done all the heavy lifting. We merely need to trust you and let it go. In Jesus' name, amen.